0: Welcome to another episode of Deluxe Edition. I am your host, Casey Shearer. Joining me, as always, L. Ray Sexton. What's going on, my friend? Not too much, buddy. We just talked to the great David Morrell. Tell everyone who David is before we do the house cleaning and get right into the interview.
1: David is the man who wrote First Blood, which you
0: probably know as a movie.
1: But it's actually a book first.
0: Yeah, this guy is fascinating. The, the amount of research that he puts in—like I thought I put a lot of research into these interviews. David puts a tremendous amount of research into his books, and it it really shows. the The descriptions and everything is it's it's just incredible. So, uh, so let's get into it, Ray. Let's just do a very quick house cleaning.
1: You you better do it right this time, though, because you've been leaving a lot of shit out on the house cleaning. So don't be skimping on the house cleaning.
0: All right. All right. We are a part of the Deluxe Edition Network. You can find all of the other great shows over at com, And the podcasts of the month this month are Horsin' Around and The Real Drunks. And you can find us over on instagram and twitter at deluxe edition pod ray is now handling the instagram duties so go check that out let's see you can find our t-shirts over at whatamaneuver.net slash collections slash deluxe dash edition and if you'd like to support the show a little bit more you can go over to patreon.com slash deluxe edition pod and get the show immediately after it's recorded. And if you like this interview with David, go check out the rest of our interviews over at deluxe edition dot show. You can find all of, all of everything over there. Everything is there. One spot deluxe edition dot show and Ray your plugs, please.
1: You can go to T public. 10 cent beer night podcast and buy bootleg deluxe edition merch, coffee mugs, tank tops, t-shirts, uh, notebooks. I think I got those over there. I, I think I even got fucking throw pillows over there for fuck's sake. Go buy some shit.
0: Yeah. Go buy the deluxe edition bootleg merch. It's a little bit cheaper than the, uh, the what It
1: actually is. Yeah.
0: So, uh, if you want to support, support the show there's multiple ways that you can do so but also
1: uh, before we go i want to ask everyone to rate like subscribe comment on all our shit because you don't realize that it does help a lot you don't have to buy something to help the show
0: yeah absolutely thank you for that ray and And here is our interview with David Burrell. You are the father of the modern action novel. Okay.
2: (laughs) Well, uh, a critic critic applied that to me, and uh, I think the reason uh, that it stuck is that you have to remember that I'm a thriller writer, but I was also a professor, and I look at things a, a little differently. And I was writing, when I was working on First Blood, I was also uh, getting my uh, doctorate in American literature. And I had my master's degree was on the style of Ernest Hemingway. And I don't write like Ernest Hemingway. Uh, he did it so well. Why would anybody want to write and imitate him? But uh, what I learned from him was that he tried to do things as if they hadn't been done before. Uh, and uh, thrillers and action novels are just rife with cliches. Uh, the worst of which is the shot rang out because <laughs> shots don't ring out. Right. Or gun smoke filled the air, even though modern gunpowder doesn't have gun smoke.
0: Right.
2: And it goes on like that. So I, I, um I thought when I was writing First Blood, which was almost at the same time, that if I was going to write this action book, which would be a mirror of what was happening in the United States at the time, that I would try to be as dedicated as Hemingway had been and find ways to write action as if it had not been written before. People began to understand that um, the book took action in a different way and and it's i think it's significant that i was writing the book at the same time that Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch came out in uh, 1969 and i to this day haven't gotten over seeing that movie and what you know the the western genre is before the wild bunch and everything thereafter either Extends what Peck and Pa did, or else denies it and goes back to the earlier ways that Westerns. So, in some ways, without uh, my my hope was that First Blood would be that way as well, and and so people have been kind in in calling it, uh, you know, the, the, that it's the father of the modern action novel because it it changed things and. And I I guess one evidence of that is that the book was published in nineteen seventy-two and it's never been out of print. And there yeah. are very, very few novels published that far back that are still around, which tells me that it's having an influence.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and uh people have used your book as like a reference while they're teaching, also one that I know of in particular, Stephen King, right? when he was at the I, University of uh, Maine, right? I,
2: I didn't know Steve at the time. Later, we became a very good friends. Um, but at the time, I think that would have been 1978, uh, Steve taught a course in creative writing at the uh, University of Maine. And um, I'm, I, I know he used three texts. Texts. I don't recall the third one or if I, if I ever knew it. But the two texts that I know of were First Blood and James M. Cain's Double Indemnity, uh, which is, uh, you know, anybody can learn from that. Uh, and so, yeah, it was it was very flattering. And later um, we crossed paths and became good friends, took road trips together and things like that.
0: Yeah, very cool. So let's talk about uh, First Blood since we're talking about that. Uh, took you three years to finish, and I've heard you say that you've had you had an agent when you know when you sold the book f- to for the the screenplay to be written, mm-hmm. um, and in your contract was that no one uh, no one else could write about Rambo other than you. So, yes, but but you killed Ram- like everybody knows now you killed Rambo at the end of the book. So, like, <laughs> why was that? Well, I guess I have a couple of questions. Like when did you get the agent and why was that in your contract? If you killed him at the end of the book?
2: Well, um, all right. It, there's some funny stories here. My fiction writing teacher at Penn state, where I was going to school was a science fiction writer who used the pen name, William 10. His real name was Philip class. And he was a brilliant teacher. And I was well into first blood. I'd show him drafts, and we'd talk, and he, he, was, he was just very encouraging. And he had an agent friend. His agent was Henry Morrison, and they, another client of Henry Morrison's, and a friend of Philip Class was uh, Donald E. Westlake, uh, the great. Um, uh, he, he under his name he invented the comic caper novel and under the name of richard stark he wrote a series of very tough books about a professional thief named parker which became uh, several films and they drove from new york city to penn state which is four or five hours it's you know quite impressive and um so phil introduced us at his at a party that he was having because he just purchased a house and he was having a housewarming, the, old, the first house he'd ever purchased, and he might have been in his fifties. And um, so they'd come out for the housewarming, and he he didn't tell me he was going to do this, but he said to Henry and Don, he said, "David's working on something that I I really like, and I hear why don't David why don't you tell him what it's about?" Well, I didn't know I was going to be pitching, and in fact, I never had the, never had the experience. So we sat down on a staircase and there was only one bathroom in the house and this was a big party. And so people were going up and down the stairs to go to the bathroom. Well, and I was, I remember I was above Don was on my left and Henry was on the right. And I, so I told him about first blood and there was a pause then. And Henry looked at Don and said, what do you think? And Don said, one of those moments in one's life he said i think it's a hell of a story and and henry said i do too when you finish send it to me so suddenly i had a literary literary agent and um it took me a year or two before uh, the book was done i sent it to him in the summer of 1971 so it was, it was accepted for publication and then very quickly it was purchased by Columbia Pictures for Richard Brooks to uh, write and direct. And that's a whole other story about how that morphed into Warner Brothers and then to Carol Cohen and what have you. But the contract from Columbia uh, had a clause in it that stipulated that I, I mean, it, I'm pretty sure Henry Morrison wanted it to be in the contract. but And and I tell every writer that I know when they have contracts that that should be an essential element that you have literary control over characters that are in novels that you wrote that might become movies. Um and uh, I mean it, it makes sense, and of course, you know, Rambo died in the in the novel, but that's not the point. The point is you want, and every contract that I sign, I insist that that is in it. So where you're going with this uh, is that uh, Henry Morrison hired a, a attorney to look at the contract from Columbia. And uh, so we'll break this down. My advance, my grand advance on First Blood from a hard pack publisher was $3,500. Okay. <laughs> I was making as an assistant professor 10500 So that's one third of my income. So I guess that's pretty good, but it's not a lot of money. Now, yeah. Henry, in, in those days, agents took 10%. So Henry was getting. Ten percent of three thousand five hundred, and then he said, "I've hired this attorney, and he's going to charge you five hundred dollars." Well, oh my God, five hundred dollars, right? So, what uh, his the attorney's name? God bless him. He's no longer with us. Was Milton M. God? And Milt said, "I've arranged it so you are going to have profit participation." And that this will include sequels. Okay, so we're getting yeah. to... And and I said, but Milt, everybody's dead at the end of the novel. <laughs> and he said, David, you don't understand the movie business. This could be a musical comedy on a submarine by the time it's done. And... In fact, the first version of the movie killed Rambo. And they tested that on an audience in Las Vegas, Nevada, and the audience, there was a mini-riot because the, the characters interpreted differently in the novel than in the movie. Plus, we have Sylvester Stallone. And, you know, somebody says you can't kill Rocky <laughs> and you can't kill Rambo. So they went back to British Columbia where the film was made and they reshot the ending. And the producers, Andrew Vanya and Mario and I I liked those guys. Uh, We got along swell. And um, we had lots of conversations. And and, uh, Andy told me that they had no plans for a sequel at all, that that he was going to die. And then they reshot it. And then the movie did very well. And they suddenly said, wait a minute, we can have sequels. So the whole thing was kind of accidental. Um, uh, wow. but, um, uh, Milton and God, and, and, uh, I don't know, he, he was, Milton had no affect, you know, he, he, as an attorney, you know, you couldn't tell what he was thinking. His face <laughs> didn't move, you know? So, uh, I mean, a great negotiator for that, for that reason.
1: Hey, did you get any money from the sale on those knives from that movie? Cause I know when I was a kid, man, I had that big Rambo knife. Yeah. With,
2: uh, did you get one from uh, Jimmy Lyle?
1: I was like ten. I have no fucking clue where okay. I got it from, but I,
2: it had the oh, compass
1: yeah. on the top, and you opened it. It had all the shit inside of it.
2: Here's, I was—you
1: like, yeah, I, I know. In the eighties, kids—they just gave them these giant knives, and we we're like, "Here you go. Now you're Rambo." I would yes. put this thing you on know, my head.
2: Run for your life! Yeah, <laughs> you know. Hey, there's a there's a uh, there's a movie called Son of Rambo. And it's called, uh, the Rambo is spelled R-A-M-D-O-W. It's a deliberate misspelling. And it's about kids like you're talking about. It's set in the 1980s in, uh, in the UK. And they're, uh, they're from a troubled home. And the way they, they get away from their troubles is to dress up as Rambo and Troutman and then have, you know, enact things and, and, uh, to my amazement because this is not a big budget film somehow they got permission to uh, actually have clips from the original movies in this movie and I never I could never figure out how I, I never was able to talk to anybody that would explain this well about the knives first blood changed what's called the cutlery industry then um, it, it We have to go back a little bit. In the early 1950s, there was a Warner Brothers movie that starred Alan Ladd as Jim Bowie and was called The Iron Mistress. And the knife that was created for that movie became iconic. And people like Jimmy Lyle, who did the knives for the first and second Rambo movie. And Gil Hibben, who did the knives for the third and fourth Rambo movies, they were kids when that movie came out, The Iron Mistress, and they they went, they just freaked out and decided that they were going to become knife makers. Hmm. So there was a time in the fifties when knives from movies and all that had had some value, but that had gone away, and somebody had the idea that the knife from the first movie should become a special edition and jimmy made 100 knives handmade them he, he was a an artist and it's a very distinctive knife and uh you know beautiful and uh he made 100 of them numbered and sold them for $1000 each wow And that was in 1982. And he did the same in 1985 for the second Rambo film. uh, And the knife got longer uh, and uh, bigger. And that was the same deal. And then Gil for three and four, because Jimmy, God bless him, um, died and, and Gil took over. And so he did the same for the knives for three and four, where he, he signed numbered editions. So, um, in theory, thanks to Milk Amgott, I get a pittance from merchandising for from the movies. It ain't a lot. I mean, <laughs> what I have is like I don't know. It's so low. It's you know, you hear here, kid. Here's a quarter. You know. Uh, <laughs> but um what Jimmy and Gill did for me was to to make. Exact replicas that were not numbered, but said authors' copy. Very cool. And so, in in a way, that's what I you know I uh, I earned. Uh, they were very cool guys. I talked to uh, Jimmy Lyle. He was from Arkansas. He was called the Arkansas Knife and he had the thickest Arkansas accent that anybody <laughs> could possibly have. And I swear, I I didn't meet him. I met Gil many times, but I didn't meet Jimmy. <laughs> And after I was, I'd swear I talked with an Arkansas accent for three weeks afterward. I mean, it was like, you know, you just couldn't not talk like Jimmy.
1: Sounds like a, sounds like a wrestler name.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Jimmy, Jimmy Lyle, the Arkansas knife Smith. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't that sound like a
0: wrestling name? Yeah, Yeah, it does. So uh, speaking Uh, of all these, like things like that, David, um, I always text my, my, good friend dustin and ask him if he's ever heard of our guests and he said yeah i know i know who that is he he created rambo mm-hmm. he he said he specifically remembers when he was a kid that his babysitter would give him rambo coloring books yes and that it that your name was on there created by david Morell.
2: yeah it's true i mean comic books um dolls uh, helicopter sets. Um, I, I have, a, uh, over the years, um, I was sent a lot of this. I never opened them they're in my garage up on a shelf. I mean, my heirs can maybe sell them. I don't know. I couldn't bring myself to open them, but they're very cool. The helicopter set looks, looks pretty neat.
1: Yeah. What's your
0: address?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, no.
0: The- the amount of research david that you put into uh your novels and everything is it just fascinates me and it goes all the way back to 1968 when you grew your mustache for the first time for the research for for rambo right
2: yeah and i still have it and i'd like to shave it off but my wife won't let me um (laughs) she's never known me without the mustache and uh, I did, actually, I did once I uh, in a fit, uh, I was somewhere and the barber said, you want to, you know, so they, he, he took it off and I came home and she freaked out. It was really bad. So I, you know, I sort of willed myself to grow a mustache quickly. It was, it was, <laughs> it, was it was, it was bad. So it's difficult to uh, now, for uh, uh, the, the way men, you know, there's lots of facial hair and, and, uh well um it, one of you has well, both of you has facial hair and and one of you has extremely long hair yeah. um and uh, it's difficult to realize that in nineteen sixty eight when I started the book how um how long hair and facial hair was not the norm, and uh student protesters against the war the Vietnam War tended to be the ones with the beards and the long hair and um, law enforcement in my experience didn't like beards and long hair and um, I I grew I had heard about this and I you know my plan was that Rambo would you know, in, in the movie, Sly is <clears throat> clean-shaven, and he has sort of long hair. But in the book, he Rambo is a full beard, full long hair uh, character. And I wanted to see, uh, because he's a disaffected war veteran, he has, in effect, become a protester. He's that much against the war. And so I thought, well... I didn't want to have a beard. I don't know why, but I thought it would be easy enough to grow a mustache and we'll see. Well, the fun began um, because I, you know, wherever I went, if there was someone in law enforcement, there were rude remarks. And uh, so I thought, all right, you know, I'm getting the idea of how if I were especially um, behaving in a, a way that was, was not the way they like uh, real trouble could start. So, and, you know, I, I just partly because of my wife i just kept it
0: you grew up in canada right Mm -hmm. what took you to penn state because i i grew up in pennsylvania i grew up in Reading, pennsylvania and my dad actually goes hunting in uh port matilda which is right up the road from penn state
2: oh cool yeah uh uh, parenthetically um uh, some professors at penn state uh, knew what i was doing and they they, I, I didn't know anything about firearms at the time. I, I was learning and, and they were kind enough to help me, um, to learn about them. And I took courses and what have you. But I remember going out often hunting with, uh, these professors in order to get, you know, part of, part of the research. I grew up in a, what it, what was then a small community, Kitchener Waterloo near Toronto in Southern Ontario, Canada. And, in my this, this, the fall of the my final year, uh, for in Canada, well, I, I was getting a four year degree. You can get a three year degree in Canada as well. I was in the library of this very small college, St. Jerome's college, which was affiliated with the university of Waterloo, which is a fairly big name. And, um, I was learning about Hemingway, as I mentioned, and and it turned out they had a book that had been written about Hemingway by a professor named Philip Young. And it was the only book about Hemingway. And uh, so I started to read it, and uh, it was life-changing, which, I mean, it sounds like how is this possible that a book by a professor would be life changing? Um, he and I eventually became very close, so I often refer to him as Phil. And he wrote so well about literature; it was as if he was telling a story. It was it it, it had the compelling quality of a good good novel, but at the same time, he was writing about real books and a real author. And, and, oh, it was so wonderful that I didn't go to classes that day. I just read this thing. And then I went home, my wife, um, I didn't yet have the mustache, My my wife uh, had graduated ahead of me and she taught history at a high school and she was pregnant. And I, you know, Anybody who married you know how 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 brave this was. I I came home and I said, "What would you think if after I graduate, you quit your job, and after the baby comes, we'll go to the United States to Penn State so I could study with Philip Young?" Now, how crazy is that? we've We've been married what fifty seven years, and one reason we are was we you know we have that same thought she said, sure i mean it wasn't wasn't a second thought, and so I wrote to Philip Young and told him that I just absolutely admired his book, and I was determined to study with him and he wrote back and said that he really didn't recommend for people to come to study with someone because they get sick or fed up or can they die? I mean, it was a fairly cynical letter. And um, it doesn't work out. So I'm not knowing any better because it turned out he was writing to me after a heart attack. Oh. And not knowing any better, I said, well, provided you aren't, haven't gotten sick or fed up or died, oh. <laughs> I'm coming. And it turned out, in various ways that I, in fact, got accepted at Penn State. And we went there. And, and a year later, uh, I was a Philip Young's graduate assistant. Wow. And uh, not long after that, his wife died. And he had a young boy uh, that he was trying to take care of and how he was going to do his classes. And it turned out that my wife volunteered to become his housekeeper and god knows we needed the money so for a year and more almost every day i ate dinner and my wife and our young daughter with philip young wow and his son and i mean i got a graduate education that was beyond anything anybody can get i mean he was like a father to me and i i just can't say enough warm wonderful things about the guy and he was so brilliant Um, so anyway that's how that happened
0: very cool so what is your writing process like we talked to uh, our good friend jd slacker last week he's a beginning author he has two books under his belt Um, and he he told us that he writes everything down freehand Mm -hmm. and then takes a picture of it and obviously yeah. now you can take a picture of it and then transfer it over to your computer and your computer will scan it or maybe you know Apple. There's many different ways that you can do it. But yeah so you you started now were you writing anything before First Blood? Was was there yes. things before First Blood?
2: Yes. Um my my first choice when I was when I was mid teens, I wanted to be in the music business. Uh, but I wanted to be Nelson Riddle. If if anybody even remembers Nelson, he was the principal arranger or one of them for Frank Sinatra. But he also arranged for Linda Ronstadt and Dean Martin, and, and, and he was a, 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 just a wonderful, wonderful arranger. And. He also did uh, scores uh, for. Uh, uh, he did the score for the Great Gatsby, the Robert Redford version. He wrote scores for a television series that made a big impact on me, which I'll get to, called Route 66. He wrote a score for Naked City, and um, it shows that people don't remember anymore, but were very influential at the time. And, and for whatever reason. When I was 17 on the first Friday, I can date this very, very carefully. First Friday of October, 830 at night in 1960. And I sat down to watch a new TV show called Route 66, which was about two guys in a Corvette convertible traveling across the United States in search of America and in search of themselves that was the, the the promo for the for the show and it was filmed entirely on location it's never been done before that a TV show with two big tractor trailer transport uh, 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 containers with everything that they needed to make a movie would would go from town and city to city and and never have a set it would all they'd use 35 millimeter newsreel cameras which were small so they could get in places. And Nelson Riddle did the music and some very big names uh, guest starred. But for me, the big deal was the writing. And this was something never occurred to me that people wrote TV shows. But each week I saw the name Sterling Siliphant, very distinctive. And he later received an Oscar for – adapting John Ball's novel in the heat of the night with Rod Steiger and Sidney Poitier. And, and in the seventies, he was the king of the disaster movie writers. He did the Poseidon adventure and the towering inferno. And then he did a bunch of very well-regarded uh, TV miniseries in the eighties. Um, and I, I, I fell under, it's like what happened with Philip Young. I fell under Sterling's spell and I thought, What I wanted to do was write what he had was compelling stories that had a lot of action in them and stories that were about something. There's a lot of thought, but in order to carry the thought, there'd be, you know, lots of action going on. Um, And uh, I thought that the effect that he was having on me was so powerful. Wouldn't it be wonderful if I could write something that would have that effect on other people? and uh, I was only 17, and I wrote a letter. I went to the uh, uh, – whenever I give a talk, I always ask if there are any librarians um, because the librarian, again, changed my life. Um, I I wanted to send a letter to Sterling, and all I knew was that at the end of every Route 66, there was a card that said, this has been a, a, a production of Screen Gems. And so what the hell is Screen Gems? So <clears throat> I went to our local library and I said, I don't suppose you know how it is you shake your head because you don't expect to pause. I don't suppose you know how to get in touch with Screen Gems. And she said, sure, I do. And because she had all these reference books and she came back with the address. And I wrote Sterling this. I mean, it's embarrassing now, but uh, but I just gushed with my admiration for what he did. And he sent me back a single a, 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 a letter that was single spaced, two sides. And he basically laid out the advice that I was to follow, which was to write and write and write and mm-hmm. keep writing. And eventually I would find other people who were interested in writing and we would learn from each other. And eventually, if I had something to say, I would find somebody who could help me.
1: Hmm. How, how do you feel about his work on uh, The Naked City?
2: Oh, well, uh, uh, Sterling, there are two Naked Cities. There was a the half hour and then the hour. Well, Sterling did most of the half hours, and uh, they're really remarkable. And then because he was working on Route 66, he was the story editor on Naked City, but he did... I believe six of them out of four years or three years for the hour. So I, you know, he, he didn't do as many naked cities as he did for uh, route 66, but he, he Sterling took chances and there's a naked city episode called prime of life. And it's about a, a police detective who is required to be the witness at an execution at Austin Inc prison sing sing and the story is all about him because he's never seen he's he's seen shootings and what have you and it but he's never seen an execution and he's it's all about how he prepares to go to the execution and the and it's an electrocution and they um they don't show it and they show the the person come in and they do the the preparations, and then when they turn on the electricity, it's the people who are the observers, who are the witnesses. <clears throat> and ABC felt that this was so extreme uh, that they, and and in those days the, the, the advertisers had really were, were what ran the programs. And they, the advertisers said, we're not going to have any, we're just not, we don't want anything to do with no advertisements tonight. So the those shows ran about forty-eight minutes. <laughs> so for twelve minutes they had to quickly make up advertisements for other Naked City episodes. I mean it never and the and the series was canceled. I mean that was the that was the end that were there were more episodes, but that was the final uh uh, uh the final season and, and uh so you you know you this is high drama, you know, when it comes to uh uh, to TV, he was an amazing man, and, and he and I eventually became very close. <clears throat> In '85, we met, and it was as if it was like with Philip Young, and uh, and he went to NBC with a book of mine called Brotherhood of the Rose and said, you know, you've never done an action miniseries. Why don't you do one? And I'll be the executive producer. And I wrote several drafts for it. Uh, uh, and um, and so we worked together. And, I mean, it was just like a dream come true that the person who made me want to be a writer, that I would actually be involved in a very, you know, Robert Mitchum was the, was the star. Uh, so uh, anyhow, you know, uh, uh, when I, whenever I think of Sterling or Phil, I get, you know i I get emotional about it
0: was that do you think that two page the the double sided page that he wrote you was that the inspiration then because you wrote uh a novel or a book called the successful novelist where yes. you were you also or it's about helping yeah other writers
2: and I still have the uh if if I didn't want to go off camera, if I reached over here, I still have the letter. I framed it in uh, with the glass on it. It was, you know, you had to turn the page. So it's framed so you can turn it with this glass on each side. And and I often look at it. I just amazed that this extremely busy man, uh, that one time he had the most credits with the writers guild that any writer had ever had. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I still, um, uh, I still use it as a kind of, uh, you know, inspiration. Um, and um, anyway, yeah, go back, ask me what I was going off on the letter. At, uh, what were you saying about the letter?
0: Was the letter possibly ins- the inspiration for your book, the successful oh, I novelist? Yeah, I,
2: I, and I did, you know, I, I, I dedicated the book. <clears throat> it was originally called Lessons from a Lifetime of Writing, and the publisher wanted to change it. I don't like that title the successful novelist because it sounds like I'm, you know, very full of myself and I approached this very humbly. Uh, and I, you know, I argued against it, but they said, Hey, it's a catchy title. And well, I'm, you know, stuff happens. Uh, <clears throat> but the, the, the book is dedicated to, to Philip Klass, uh, you know, so I had like three mentors, Philip Young, Philip Klass, and Sterling Siliphon, and it's dedicated to Philip Klass and, and to Sterling. Yeah, uh, know, it's, uh, it, he He and I exchanged many, many, many letters over the years. And <clears throat> I, you know, in those days, because of the, I, I didn't have a copy machine and we didn't have a, you know, with, it's not like you can write it in those days on a computer and you'd have copies. So I have no copies of my letters, but I kept all his letters and, and they were oh my god they were maybe maybe 30 or 40 of them and uh i'm 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 sending some material just to an archive and so i read through them again and i made digital copies for uh as a backup and i must say it was you know very emotional
0: so how do you feel about because when i was growing up i really liked the writer hunter thompson yeah how do you feel about him? Like he he created basically his own style of writing, the Gonzo journalism. Oh,
2: yeah. I have his he books.
0: Would, <laughs> oh, great! If you have his book, if you have some of his books, I mean, you you were a fan, right?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, anytime you have that strong a personality, who's who's breaking the rules, uh, Hunter Thompson was one of the journalists who invented something called the new journalism in which the journalist became part of the story and in which, yeah. um, a first person, cause you know, journalists aren't supposed to be in the first person and, and they, you know, Gay Talese would have been somebody else uh, that was part of that. Um, and, uh, uh it, I, I just great admiration for, for him. Uh, you know, it, it, uh, uh, I, I don't know if, if I learned anything from him <laughs> except that uh, you know you've got to go with it that you know if that's, if that's what you think your vision is, then you have to go with it and you know I, you know in his case I think maybe a little false drugs and, and alcohol might yeah. might have helped uh, you know, the inspiration. <laughs> yeah. it's not not been my way but uh, uh, yeah, a, a, a terrific writer.
0: So let's go back to your your writing process a little bit. So when you start a a book, do you have the ending in mind or are you writing and just like playing it? Like, let's see how this plays out as I'm writing it.
2: Well, every, every book is different. And, and I've learned over the years to, you know, that it's like a new beginning. So sometimes I've had the ending in mind uh, when I was, writing First Blood, I knew almost from from the start, once I figured out that there were some false starts, but once I was actually, I knew where we were going, I knew that Troutman would have killed Rambo with a shotgun uh, and that uh, he returning, that Teasel dying, that Troutman would say that he had killed rambo and that he would eject the empty shell it's a pump shotgun and that the shell would that teasel dying that things would slow down and that he would see that shell flipping in the air and he'd be dead before it hit the ground and i knew that was my ending other times I don't know what the ending is. <clears throat> I did a, a novel. My favorite beginning of a novel is, is called "Is in the Fraternity of the Stone," uh, which is the one of the novels that established the religious spy novel. and in it, a monastery in New England, and uh, it's, it's as if we're a camera and we're coming into the monastery. and there's a man there that is not a monk. But he has somehow been given permission to live in a cell there. And he does calisthenics. He meditates. He prays. He goes to church services. Uh, Actually, he doesn't. That's the whole point. The door is closed. He can open it and leave at any time. It's not locked. But he has not for six years left that room. His food is given to him through a slot. It's almost like a prison. And what's, what's he atoning for? You know, what, what is the burden of this man? And one night he sits down with his tray and he starts to eat. And there's a mouse that each night comes out of a hole in the wall. And he knows it's a sin that he shouldn't take pleasure in anything. But he breaks off pieces of bread and gives it to the mouse. And this is his, you know, he he feels guilty about it, but he's going to feed that mouse. And he he even gives it the name, uh, Stuart Little. (laughs) And uh, on this particular night, he breaks off the bread. And and then he starts to um, eat, and it's not much. And he looks down, and the mouse is not moving. (laughs) And he stares at this mouse. And it's not moving. And he thinks. Maybe it was an old mouse. Maybe it just died. He hasn't yet. Eaten anything. And he's looking at the food. And he's looking down. And he stands. And for the first time in six years. He opens the door. And he steps out. Into the monastery. And there's no sounds and then suddenly he does hear sounds angry voices doors opening and closing and he sets out to hide because the people he's been trying to escape have found him
1: isn't this the one where he's the assassin yes ah, and, yeah okay
2: and and that's all i knew that's all i knew um, that he would escape. And for six years, he hasn't been in the world. So he would learn about the world. And I, I I, didn't know anything about the guy, except that I was fascinated. And so I wanted, what I did was I learned, you know, he, he and I discovered the story together. Uh, and uh, it's only happened to me like that once, but I mean, it was so, it was so adventurous every day to come down and say, in effect, say to this guy, all right, where are we going today? Uh, Cause that's the way imagination works. So that, that, that happened to me once where the opening was so powerful. I didn't care if I didn't know the rest, I would go with it. Other times I knew the ending and only in one case did a book come to me totally in one vision, as it were, that I knew Everything about it. And that was a book called Creepers, uh, which is uh, in film production film production now. And um, I was able, it normally takes me a year to write a book. And, oh, there you go. Yes. Uh, with, with Stephen King's quote on it. Yeah. Uh, wonderful Stephen being, being yes. so generous. And um, anyway, I, I write a, normally about a year, year and a half. But I wrote that book in three months. Wow. So it just, it, well, I knew it, you know, I mean, it was just, I knew where we were going and it, and it had this this extra, extra thing that interested me that I would, it would take place in eight hours and every instant, every breath of eight hours would be on the page because the way you normally do this is you say five minutes later or, you know, an hour afterward or what have you, but there are no five minutes later, every instant – I mean, if they have to relieve themselves, that's in the book. There are no cutaways, and I just thought that was uh, that that kept me going in a way too. But I knew exactly how that was going to play out, and so it it varies. And I in the my writing book, I have a, a chapter about what I call the written conversation with my, myself, which is the section that most people mention of of the people who read the book. I mean, writing books, it's not like they're bestsellers, you know, we're a limited uh, readership here. But of those people who have read the book, I get the most comments about that. And it's a kind of a form of uh, self-psychoanalysis in the sense of um, one difference between uh, writers and what I call jokingly civilians is that a writer shouldn't let anything go past that if something is interesting, the next question is, why is it interesting? And because it speaks to something in me, um, because it might not be interesting to somebody else, but it is to me. So why is it interesting to me? And so this written conversation was sort of me asking myself, why is this interesting? And that, and then digging deeper and deeper and finding out reasons for, for why this is in the book. I did a book about photography, a thriller called Double Image. Uh, it's sort of like Blow Up, the movie about the photographer who sees things in the photos he's taken that, that weren't evident at the start. And I became, I wanted to write a book about photography, a novel, because I had been spellbound by some photographs of a house in the Hollywood Hills. That a movie star of the twenties, Ramon Navarro had owned. And there were pictures, this was an architectural digest, and he was there, you know, posing in various rooms in the house. And it was a gorgeous house. It's a kind of a looks like a Mayan temple. And it was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright's son. And oh, it's just gorgeous. But I was, I was, I just couldn't get over my fixation on these photos and and it took me a long time partly through this device of a written conversation with myself to realize that what was what was getting to me was that this guy was has been dead a long time and the house has in the hollywood hills has no it's barren hills and if you go there now, there are all these other houses and all these shrubs and trees and all that, but there's—it's just the house on this barren hill. And 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 I realized for me that photographs froze time. Yeah. Uh, that I mean, and that that and then if we want to take the extra step, that what freaks me out about photographs is that at bottom for me they're about death. Because it freezes time, but time does not get frozen. It keeps going this way and ev- eventually disintegrates.
1: Every uh, picture is a picture from the past.
2: Ex- exactly. And so I wanted to write a book that, that kind of analyzed the emotions that these photographs made me feel. So this written conversation is very important to me. And the advantage is it is writing, uh, uh, which is a perishable skill. And it is a record of my thoughts and emotions so that as will happen in life, we get sick or some terrible things happen, that I can come back to that document and catch up to myself very quickly. Um, and it's, I think, the, the most important writing tool that I've worked out for myself. And as I said, other people uh, like it, find it useful as well. And uh, then my basic method is, because uh, that becomes in effect the outline. It's not an outline, but it is an outline. And um, I, in in when I'm when I'm working and in a and really really focused, I do about five pages a day. This 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 is what Sterling wrote: five pages a day. So if it's good enough for Sterling, it's good <laughs> enough for me. Although Stephen King. I don't know if he still does, but I was I he and I were in a room together writing to uh, he was at his desk and I was a guest at his home and I was in a corner working on on one of my things because he writes every day and it's six pages for him. And he does it every day. The joke was he doesn't do it on Christmas and his birthday, but it is a joke because he does write on Christmas and his birthday, and he's got these drawers with all these manuscripts i mean if you do six pages a day three hundred and sixty five pages a year, i mean uh days a year, oh my god, and he has that he has the ability i'm he's what you might call a putter in, her, and I'm a taker outer i I tend to compress and uh, he amplifies and anyhow. Um in and, and if I'm really going at it, I'll do five pages a day and feel guilty as hell if somehow I don't if whatever happens, I don't get five pages and I'll make them up the next day. And I read I I work on the computer. In the old days I typed. Um and I did do some what you were talking about, do some handwriting, but my handwriting is awful. Uh, and, and I, I just couldn't, it can be helpful because you do see things in a different way, but I'm mostly, mostly typed and then, and the damage to my fingers shows it. And then with the computer, what I would do, because I'm a really, I, I think it's important to be analog digital. So I would write on the computer at the end of the day, I print out. And then the next day I read the printed document. And I read at a place where I do not write. I have a reading desk and a writing desk, and this is all a way of finding different perspectives. So I'm seeing it on the screen. I'm seeing it on the page. I'm seeing it, you know, on that side of my office, and or and over here. And then at the end of each draft, I change the font uh, so that <laughs> if, if it's uh, if it's a, a, a one kind of, you know, either the size of it or else I might actually change the font from whatever to something else. And, you know, these are all good tricks in order because, you know, the problem is you see stuff so often, so much that you, you, you just don't have any objectivity. So I make some hand corrections very lightly and then put them into the computer and then go forward. And then, cause I tend to write chap sections that run not about 60 pages because uh, that's maybe how long people have a attention span. Uh, so my books tend to be part one, 60 pages, part two, 60 pages, that sort of thing. And so at the end of, a, say, a 60 pages, then I'll read the whole thing in order to get a sense of the speed and the pace that, that, that I'm working with. Um, and the same thing at, when the book is done, um, that's one draft, and then when I reread it, I often cut too much for the second draft. And, and then I realized I took so much out. And then the third draft is a kind of a, of a combination.
1: This is why I love talking to authors because it gives us an idea of what we would have to do to actually get our shit together and write a book.
2: It's all about putting your butt in a chair. Uh, and, and you have to want it I tell I, I go to conferences and I teach writing. I, I tell them, you must want it almost more than life itself. And you must have personal people in your life, in my case, my wife, um, but, you know, partners or however, you know, or, you know, it helps. Maybe if you're just a hermit, um, but it helps to have people who are important to you in your life who get it and he say all right that's the way you are so i'm that's fine and um and the the drive this is when in my writing book the first chapter is why do you want to be a writer and the, and what it comes down to is because you absolutely must be you might not know why but you absolutely must be and you are willing to do whatever it costs to make that happen. And and it, be, it gets difficult because if we follow the Myers-Briggs personality test, people <laughs> tend to be extroverts or introverts. And they don't necessarily mean somebody who's showing off a lot as an extrovert. What they're talking about is emotional energy. And some people get tremendous just energy from being with other people. And those people tend not to be successful novelists because they need, out. they need to be, you know, it's the conversation. And I'm an only child. I was in an orphanage for a while when I was, when I was a kid. And um, I mean, I can sit for eight, eight, 10 hours if I have to. And I don't, it's fine.
1: If and I'm I, alone it, for an hour, I'm looking for somebody to talk to.
2: That, that means what you have to do because you can do it, but you have to make the bargains with yourself. Um, and you have to say, all right, you know, now, for example, in the, mo- in the TV business, in the writer's room, you'd be great in a writer's room. Um, because you'd be able to socialize and change ideas. And I'd probably be a nervous wreck after two days, um, because that'd be too much, too, too much buzz. Um, and so what, what has to happen in that case is you have to you know, know that about yourself and know that you're not going to be able to do the five page stretch. And, you know, what I used to tell people is if you can get one page a day written, and and we remember, you know, people have lives. They're they're not. I'm I'm blessed because I get to do what I want, and I can write all day. But you know, people have families. They have other jobs. They have obligations of many things. And and but I, you know, talking to to people at conferences, I say, look, is there no time in the day when you could at least set aside to write one page? Because if you do one page, that's 365 a year, that's a book. Yeah. And, and so yeah, that's that's a, advice. Well, if you can't do the one page. Then either you don't know what you want to write about or else. Yeah. That's uh, <laughs> I
1: once wrote a letter to uh, R. a R.A. Salvador who writes the, uh, a lot of books. He's a fancy author. And I told him like, you know, I really want to write a book. And he said this pretty much the same thing. If you're, if you're a writer, it, it'll happen. You yeah. won't be able to stop yourself. That was his advice to me. He was like, "If you can't stop yourself, then you're a writer. Yeah. If you, if you can stop yourself, go ahead and go do something else. But well, that's the
2: thing. Yourself, you know. I mean, it. I, I, I think I'd be a lousy brain surgeon. You know. <laughs> um, in fact, there's a joke about that. That because uh, you you see this a lot. Somebody will say, "Well, after I retire, I think I'll be a novelist." <laughs> and you know, and I say, yeah, I think after I retire, I'll be a brain surgeon. You know?
0: <laughs> so you might you might not like the name of the the book, the successful novelist, but you obviously are a successful novelist. So have you ever written anything that hasn't been published? Yes. Like, so, um, uh, like, what's that like? I mean, you, you're like, you well, realize who I am?
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, you can't you can't think that way. You know, I mean, then you're really in trouble. Uh, and one of the reasons this is my fifty-first year, although I haven't published anything in a while, so I'm tending to say if I had a career of fifty years, you know, being able to deliver on time, being able not to be a pain in the ass, uh, being collegial, you know, uh, uh, is is um, you know, it's a good way to 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 to, to have editors um say we can rely on him there there i won't mention the author, but there was a very successful author in the nineties who, who was such a pain that writers uh, publishers wouldn't work with him and even though the, the books really had you know a lot of sales um but um it, 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 so i mean that's that's a part of it uh that you you, you know you just try to um try to say to yourself, the work is what matters. And, and the, the book I most mourn uh, was a, um, a book called intruder. And it was about a woman who was on the run from an abusive husband. And this, I, I worked on this. I wrote two, 300 pages of it in, uh, 1979. And, uh, I, in a, in a, you know, half of it, I showed to some editors, and one editor said, "Well, this woman deserves to be beaten."
0: <laughs> Jesus.
2: And uh, other somebody else, she was. Uh, the idea was that she she starts she's in a farming community. She, it's a She lives in a trailer with this guy who beats her and, and inadvertently he sets fire to himself and she manages to escape, but the son of a bitch doesn't die. <laughs> and, and so he's disfigured. And what he does is he, he puts on disguises, fake beards and things. And, you know, so she never knows when he's going to show up and she sort of flees across the country and, and sort of it's sort of an empowered woman's story because as in her various whatever she goes through, she gets more powerful and she begins to rise, you know, and 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 become not not that there was anything wrong with where she was, but you know, she she becomes ambitious. And um so the whole point was that her character would change. And another editor said, well, yeah, that's fine, but can't you make her the daughter of a dress designer? Uh, you know, can't you make, you know, so that she'd start at the top, so to speak. Yeah. And where would she go? And so I was struggling with this. And, and, uh, and then a movie called Sleeping with the Enemy came out, um, which is a abusive husband story and was a very big hit. And um, so, what was was going to be a very kind of revolutionary novel, uh, very you know, in because I did a lot of research for it, and you know, it was going to be in battered women's shelters, and you know, people were going to find out what that life was like, and what these poor women, and how you know, how how do you survive when you're in a circumstance like that, and you don't have any means, and 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 maybe. Um, Maybe you know you you, you you have a child, and so you're worried. You know how will I take care of the child? That I, but anyway, um, once "Sleeping with the Enemy" came out, um, it, it the, my book would have looked like I was imitating it.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: So I I was uh, this is you know a case of very poor timing, and the truth is I don't know whether the way i wanted to tell the story um would have um would have found a home um, because the sleeping with the enemy is the upper scale version of that story where everybody's you know living in attractive homes and things like that and and not you know you know in a trailer so um anyway that's that's an example of so i wrote something that that never found a home and, and, um, you know, one, I don't know of many other occupations where you could work on a project for six months or a year. Yeah. with No expectation that you'll be paid for it.
1: Did, uh, did you call anybody buddy and be like, um, uh, part of my French, but like, fuck you, my movie, my idea was better. Should have been a book, should have been a movie. Fuck you. No,
2: no, no, it's not, it's not in my personality. You gotta, I'm Canadian. Oh, I <laughs> it right. No, I mean, you just say, okay, I, you know, I mean, a lot of unhappiness comes when we try to deny reality, mm. yeah. uh, you know, and that was the fact. Mm. So what am I going to do? Deny the fact? No, that's the way it was. It was the wrong time. Mm. Um, I'll give you another example, although it's not a book. Um, in, in a, a, a maybe five, six years ago, I became interested in the cowboy movie star, Roy Rogers. Hmm. And I I discovered that his movies had been heavily edited when they were shown on TV and that in their original run, they were for their time, very violent. Uh, One example is that in one movie, Roy and the bad guy go after each other with whips and they lash each other's shirts off and there are bloody streaks over their chests. Well, that never showed up on TV. Um, Instead, we had Roy, you know, strumming his guitar. And I realized that Roy's movies, that his legacy wasn't accurate because nobody had seen a true Roy Rogers film. And right now, there are only two that are available on DVD that are that are correct. One is called Trigger Jr. and the other is called Sunset in the West. And of the two, Trigger Jr. is the better film. And, I mean, it's there's some stuff in that that you say, holy cow, how did they get away with it? And at the same time that this was happening, Roy had an argument with his studio, Republic Pictures, because they were starting to show old movies on television. And Roy's contract did not include television. It included only movies. And he said, you can't show my movies on TV. Or if you do, you have to give me something for them. And they took him to court. And in in the first case he lost, in the second case, case he won, he appealed and he won, and it went to the Supreme Court. Wow. Which denied didn't want to hear it. I'm doing this. I'm I'm, I'm going to think. I he won the first case, lost the second one. Appealed to the Supreme Court. They denied hearing it, and as a consequence, the second decision held. And and Republic Pictures was so angry with him that they blacklisted him. So that Roy's last film for Republic was in '51. He did make a picture. for for Paramount called Son of Paleface with Bob Hope and Jane Russell. It's a wonderful film. And that was his last major motion picture, 1952 or 53. He didn't work again in movies until he made a very small independent picture uh, called Macintosh and TJ in the 70s. And so his career from then on was based upon the TV series he'd had and him making personal appearances. And yet he was a star. So while all this was happening, his children started to die. He, one child who, who had uh, been born with Down syndrome suffered until the age of three. She had all kinds of diseases and then she died. Another child on the way to a, uh, with, a, with a missionary group to Mexico to deliver food and clothing and medicine, there was a car, an accident, and she went through the front windshield of the bus. And, and God knows what she looked like. And another, uh, uh, child went to, um, join the military. And then a hazing was forced to drink, uh, so much alcohol, he vomited and aspirated it, and he died that way. One after the other, after the other. And here, here's the point because Roy and Dale were known for their religious. So this was the thing. Roy said to Dale, how can I believe in a God that allows children to suffer? And then all this happened. And so the doc- I wrote a documentary. I was going to produce a documentary about this story, which I find to be extremely moving and how he persisted with the weight of everything upon him. And uh, I had the cooperation of of one member of the Rogers family, who at the last minute, we were just about to start shooting the interviews. And uh, the last minute said, no, I won't be a part of it. And so we had six months of, and I, you know, in this case, I had actually written a script um it's because, uh, it's not dramatic it's but i for a structure i knew what i wanted to have people say and in the interviews i would have said look you know this is generally what i want out of the interview and you know they would have hopefully provided what was a version of their own words in the script and so i lost six months maybe a year on that so wow but but wow. But, but what a meaningful experience was for me uh, i mean this 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 was an inspiring story I'm, I'm not religious but my heavens to suffer that much and to still be the evangelists that they were I, I i don't understand it yeah uh, so anyway that's an example of some of the things that never happened
0: wow so the like i, I mentioned earlier the amount of uh research that that goes into what you do um going back to the mustache in 68 uh, you've done driving courses survival training um, 30 days in the rocky mountains uh, you also have your pilot's license where did you get the idea like because the the mustache was the first thing so was there an idea that like like where did that come from that you that you have to do that much research for what you're for what you're doing,
2: the the idea was, you know, the bromide in uh, writing courses is write what you know about. But most people are bored with what they know about. Uh, you know, if you talk to somebody in the emergency ward about you, you know what you get through as as a doctor, that'd be a good good story. And they say, oh, "That's the last thing I want to do. I don't want to think about it." <laughs> Um, and my rule became that I, I would like to write books about what I wanted to learn about. Um, and uh, so in the photography book I mentioned earlier, Double Image, um, you know, I took courses in photography. I, I, you know, had interviews with the photographers and um talk to collectors. It was really quite interesting to enter that world. So each of the books has had a world that I found interesting and that I wanted to enter into. And um, as I got farther along, I became a little bit more intense about uh, wanting this experience so that in a, a book called The Shimmer which is about the mysterious Marfa lights of West Texas, which are very real and very mysterious. And I, I've, I've seen them. They're pretty eerie. Uh, and, uh, they appear on uh, near where there was where, where an abandoned world war two military air base that they used for training pilots. And I thought that's kind of interesting, you know, that they're and, and, uh, and in, in the day, the military instructors, would they, they were using a single prop aircraft, nothing, nothing, nothing very sophisticated. But the, the pilots, the trainees, would chase the lights. And sometimes the lights would chase them. And they went out with uh, paper bags full of flour. And you could open the canopy and, you know, drop in the flour and it would explode on the ground. Then they'd go out in the daytime and try to figure out where these lights were coming from and i thought well i guess i'm going to have aircraft sequences <laughs> and 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 you know you i don't know if you've read many books with aircraft sequences but most of the time they sound really unreal they sound so bogus and i thought well i don't want to embarrass myself so i started taking flight lessons and because it's my personality you know i said oh what the hell <laughs> I'll keep going. And and finally, I got my license. Um, And, uh, uh, you know, the book is better uh, because I was able to write believably about about it. So, you know, and I've had I went to the Bill Scott Raceway in West Virginia where the government sends people to learn how to drive defensively in uh, if they they have uh, people they're protecting. Uh, and where major corporations send their drivers uh, to, 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 for evasion driving and what have you in the event that they're executives whom they're they're driving um, in the event that there's some kind of you know kidnapping attempt. And interestingly, in that case, they said the biggest problem with disgruntled employees going after CEOs and that that's more than anything why they had to have the training. Uh, And so I spent five weeks, five days there, and I learned how to car fight. And we were, you know, doing all kinds of fun things at fifty-five miles an hour, wrecking shit out of the cars. (laughs) They were, there was nothing to them to begin with. And then, for the fifth day, we shot at cars. They they had a car because you see in the movies, you know this. And you see this in books, too. So a car will be driving away and somebody put out, a, you know, and fire and hit the gas tank and the car blows up. It will not happen. It's not, you know, there'll be a hole in the gasoline will leak out. I mean, if you had a tracer round or something. And, and similarly that, you know, they shoot a tire and it explodes. Well, modern tires do not explode. Uh, I mean, maybe with a shotgun blast, if it was you know disintegrated, but if you hit it with a bullet, it probably 12 miles later, it might deflate. And, and in the case of protecting people in limousines, armored limousines, there are two tires. They have the outside tire, but in the event that it is destroyed, there is a hard inside tire that will allow them, it won't be fun, but will allow them to maneuver the car and get away. So this is the stuff I was learning. But, you know, you see in movies, movies are, oh, you just shot rang out. So, all right, you got two cops show up and they're shooting and they get out of the car and they open the door and they crouch behind the door and they look out and they shoot, you know. Well, look. Any decent round from a, from a firearm is going to, you know, let's leave her sideways and went through the door, through the passenger driver compartment out the other door. Right. I mean, unless you happen to hit one of the braces, you know, in, in the car, which, you know, I don't think I'd want to depend upon. Um, So the only thing you want to do is get behind the engine block and that'll, you know, it, it, it'd have to be a hell of a hell of a weapon or the engine block away. So what we were doing was shooting a vehicle with gasoline in it to see if we could blow it up, which we couldn't, um, you know, to see if we'd get the tires deflate, that took a long time. And then to see how many holes we could make in the car, you know, where people might think they could hide, but it wasn't going to happen. And so, you know, fascinating stuff. And, and, you know, you can't, you know, uh, in books, people read that and they say, gosh, I didn't know that. Uh, So that extra kind of insider knowledge is is fun for for me to have.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've read, well, I shouldn't say I read them. I listened to your audio books of First Blood, First Blood 2, and I'm working on Creepers now. And the amount of detail that you put into these books is is amazing and the next one that I want to get and I just want uh, you to talk a little bit about this before we wrap it up um your book stars in my eyes my love yeah. affair with books movies and music so yeah. uh, we are a pop culture podcast so um i th- I think you you're a fascinating guy man oh well
2: thank thank you I know no I'm gonna I turn red anyhow <laughs> so now I'm you know am I a little red <laughs> uh, so We remember that in my other life, I was a literary professor and uh, my specialty is really what's called American studies, uh, which is the way that we can analyze culture uh, in order to understand art or to use art in order to understand the culture. So I uh, and my agent often gets, uh, you know, this doesn't understand. He says, why would you spend Three months researching Frank Sinatra and how he learned to sing. Not the movie star, but how, among other things, he took lessons from a metropolitan opera. This is back in the 30s. He took lessons from a metropolitan opera singer. I said, why would you do that? Because you're not going to get any money out of it. You know, I might get a couple of dollars. You know, I just said, I want, I just want to learn about this. And, you know, I got, I got the bug. So over the years for various magazines, I used to write for a magazine, a uh, high-end audio video magazine. And I did pieces about uh, Sinatra, about Nelson Riddle and uh, uh, Bobby Darin, things like that. And uh, I also wrote for, I, I did articles about Marilyn Monroe and John Wayne. And uh, so over the years, there were quite a lot of these. And then there was my story about Philip Young and Hemingway and how I became, you know, like a son to him. And so over the years, I acquired quite a few essays of different, different sorts. And, and uh, so I thought um, I would collect them in, in, in a book and some of it would be about uh books some about movies and some about music there's a there's a essay about Steve mcqueen in there and um uh i just i love to do this stuff I, I, and um i mean there's no money in it uh, uh it, it's uh, you know i have an ebook give a poor author a break buy the ebook the stars in my eyes because I think last month I made $4.12 <laughs> off this book, right? But I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, it, it's uh, And I have enough now that, uh, that almost for a, a son of stars in my eyes uh, that would uh, – and there are they're, they're a lot of – some of them are about Westerns, like uh, about Owen Wister's The Virginian. And one of them is about uh, Ira Levin's Rosemary's Baby, and um, uh, uh, another ghost story, uh, ghost writer M.R. James, and his ghost stories. And um, so, you know, maybe I'll do another one, and maybe with luck, I might four, make four dollars on that one. And
0: um, <laughs> well, but, I can you'll you'll make another four dollars today uh, because I'll buy it as soon as as soon as we're finished here, I promise. Because uh, I want to I want to take a look at that.
2: One of one of my friends is Robert A. Harris, the film restorer. Uh, he did uh, um, uh, Lawrence of Arabia and Vertigo and My Fair Lady and and we wouldn't have them those films and and many others if it weren't for for Robert A Harris and uh, we talk a lot we, we both are fascinated by the mechanism of movies and preserving them and anyhow he has this expression that you know if something does really well we can order the large fries.
0: What I find, you know, it's it's fascinating and sad at the same time to think about uh, the the time period that you're talking about with a lot of these films and things because, especially with the television shows, like there this uh, lady behind me here, Vampira, she yeah. had a TV show, and there's only about I think three minutes of footage from her television show because wow. they would they would just re-record over the old the the tapes. yes. So there's, you know, it, it, and they, they did that with a lot of things.
2: Well, and also with, cause I'm old enough that I saw the golden age of television with live television and, you know, Reginald Rose and Rod Serling and Patty Chayefsky and, and the like when they were writing. And, and I, <clears throat> this was about the time, maybe just a little bit earlier when I was running to Sterling Silphan and, um, and they, you know, most of that isn't preserved uh there are many rod Serling uh, uh you know before he did the Twilight Zone uh he did you know he did he did a, a play called the Rank and the File about uh, labor unions and doesn't exist
0: yeah. uh,
2: but at the time it it had a reputation so um yeah, it's very sad and 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 a lot of the, the, the this was i guess nobody's fault. Warner Brothers, which had a number of successful television series, such as Cheyenne and Maverick, they had um, 77 Sunset Strip and Surfside 6 and Hawaiian Eye. Now, I don't remember these. Uh, I would like to see them again, but the story is that there was a fire and they're gone. Wow. Uh, Now, we could get surprised by that, but I know there's been a lot of requests to do them and the materials aren't there. And, you know, with Bob Harris... Uh, I mean, literally, you know, we wouldn't have Lawrence of Arabia or My Fair Lady or Fair to Go or go on and on Spartacus, you know, without his knowledge and ability to, <clears throat> um, you know, these days, the techniques are different. He was working with actual film and cleaning it up uh, and looking for, you know, worldwide for holding the takes. And he's yeah. really interesting to talk to the stories.
0: There's a company out now, it's called Vinegar Syndrome. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of them. They're, re- they're doing a lot of uh, restoration work with, with films that, you know, have never uh, really seen the light of day. Yes. Um, which yeah. is re- really, really cool what they're doing.
2: Well, recently, uh, uh, Invaders from Mars uh, was uh, a <laughs> – is that up there? Do you have that on your wall?
1: Yeah, no, nah, I don't have it on the wall, but I love that movie.
2: Well, they managed to restore it. Uh if you go on, um I'm trying to think of the company. There's a 4K Invaders from Mars in which they managed to track down as many of the elements as they could, and it and they're actually selling uh, uh posters uh that, that they invented, you know, for special editions of, of this. And uh I mean who, that was considered a lost film. Um it's it's not War of the Worlds in the fifties. Right. That the George Powell thing is like, wow. Uh, but you know, it's, a, it, it, they managed to save it and it's getting, you know, it's getting some, some awards for, Hey, thank you for doing
0: this. David, this has been awesome, man. Ray, do you, do you have anything else for David? Do you want to ask him one of your real questions?
1: I do have a real question. Okay. So, so according to how this works is you have 60 seconds to answer this question. I don't want to put a lot of pressure on you, but that's what you got.
2: All right. I'm about to run, but go ahead.
1: (laughs) Okay. Uh, We all know Sylvester Stallone was amazing as Rambo. Mm -hmm. But if you could pick someone else to play that character, who would it have been?
2: Well, uh, actually, that's easy to answer because there was a prior production that almost happened in which Sidney Pollock would have been the director and, drumroll, Steve McQueen was Rambo. And uh, Steve wanted to do the motorcycle stuff, and you know, be the rebel and all that. <clears throat> and uh, what happened is, and the Sidney Pollock told me this. I I met him somewhere. We were not close, but we had a conversation in passing, and he was telling me that the problem became that Steve was in his mid forties, hmm. and this would be nineteen seventy five. You know, may, earlier forties maybe, but that there were no in nineteen seventy five. Vietnam veterans who were in their mid forties. That was a, you know, you, they were 18, 19, 20 year old people fighting that war. Uh, so they had to reluctantly abandon it. And um, so that, you know, if not fly, who, who is uh, Richard, this is longer than the 32nd or the sixth. but <laughs> it's where this, it's where the story I, I uh, in, in, the course of the Rambo films, I had lengthy conversations with Sly and also with Richard Crenna, who is a terrific, terrific person, uh, and, and really interesting and very generous in his, not that Sly isn't, but we're talking about Richard. And Richard said that in his long career, cause he'd started as a kid actor, he said that in his long career, he had worked with only two male actors. Who knew what they were doing in front of the camera? Um, in terms of props, in terms of you know, you got to do something. You know, Newman uh, wouldn't have been it. You know, Newman tended when he was brooding would you know pinch his nose or you know, you know. But uh, but people who were dynamic, finding ways with props especially, and he's and the eyes. And he said the the two of them were Steve McQueen and 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 Sylvester Stallone. And oh, wow. both of them had, uh, you know, th- their eyes, you know, if they can get away with not speaking and, and do it visually, it's better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I have, you know, tremendous respect. Of, you know, the eyes in First Blood tell the whole story. Uh, you know, they yeah. make, it's kind of almost like the eyes of the deer. And uh, he's he's a nice guy, by the way. We, uh, You know, I I uh, I've had many conversations with him. He's very funny. Uh, makes he's very and in fact very self-deprecating makes a lot of jokes about himself <laughs> but he's very smart um and uh, if we have the time i'll tell you tell you a story um, yeah
0: you can tell us anything man we we have nowhere to go
2: <laughs> well we were talking and he was talking about the difficulty in movies of finding a fresh way to do something and to do it without dialogue And the reference he made was to a scene in one of the Rocky films where his wife is dead and he goes every day to visit her at her grave. And what the task is, how do you do this in a way that feels fresh? Because the standard way to do this is to have Rocky walk along a path and there's a guy on a lawnmower going by and he'll say, Hey, nice to see you again, Rocky. And it works. But it's pretty tired. And he said that it took him a while, but finally, and he was, he was, he wasn't being arrogant. He was saying, you know, I I was sort of happy with myself that I thought of this. He shows up at the grave. He looks down and he reaches up on a camera frame and he brings down a folding chair, which is stored in the tree. And he opens it up and sits down to talk to her. And what this does, of course, because, you know, He's been coming there so much that he's stored this, and they, the people at the cemetery allow it. Yeah. And that, that's, that's that's good stuff. Yeah.
1: Hey, look, I love Sylvester Stallone, but I'm going to tell you right now McQueen was in his 20s when he was in the blob playing a teenager. So I would let him do fucking that movie all day
2: long. That's so, weird. Right so weird. So weird. Yeah. And he's young Stephen McQueen. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. Young Stephen McQueen what is he, twenty-eight? I you know He's
1: like twenty-eight in that movie.
0: <laughs> so one one last thing before we let you go here, uh David. I've I've heard and I'm curious if you've ever heard this, that Quentin Tarantino has said that if he would ever decide to remake a movie that it would be first blood.
2: Yes. That is correct. and he would
0: he would do it more to the book to keep it true to the book
2: if, if you google Quentin Tarantino first blood in several interviews I, I I don't know Quentin but I am a fan right and especially of once upon a time in Hollywood but all of them some more than others but that's the way life is you know Jackie Brown I adore um, but once upon a time in Hollywood wow I probably saw that 12 times in the theater Wow. And, 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 oh. it gets better and better each time you know it's a hangout movie you know you like these people so much She says oh i'll go hang out with <laughs> so anyhow he was promoting the novelization for the movie and it's the novelization is it's like it's not the movie it's something else the climax of the movie occurs in the middle of the book in the middle of a paragraph it's just thrown away you know he it's a it's a different vision of once upon a time in hollywood the movie so you know quentin likes to talk and he likes movies and all that and in several he didn't do it just once in several interviews he said if he was going to do a remake and that's you know the if that he would choose first blood and he would he would get adam driver as Rambo, and Kurt Russell as Teasel.
0: Oh,
2: yeah. And that he would, and then he started He started talking about the dialogue in the novel. I mean, he actually knows the book in detail, and he talks about, you know, I mean, he knew it. I, I was just I was just overwhelmed to have somebody that I admire that much to, to know my work. And uh, he said, but you know, he doesn't do remakes, although if you think about it, isn't Inglorious Bastards
0: a remake? It's a remake. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 Our our the, the buddy, anxiety,
0: you know, our buddy, <laughs> yeah. our buddy, our buddy Bose Venson was in the original.
2: Yeah. Uh, I mean, so, you know, I don't know what this thing is about remakes, but, uh, right. but, you know, he said he'd do the, the book and and that that's not to say anything bad about the movie. Um, yeah. It's a different train track from the book, different yeah. interpretation. But once you make the decisions, the interpreted decisions. It's a good movie. And I'm in one of those rare, rare moments, uh, uh in, in, uh, uh, DVD production that I, I was asked to record an audio commentary for first blood in which I would talk specifically about some stories behind, you know, the story and about my novel and the, and the movie and the differences and the reasons for the differences. Cause I, I was, you know, I was in an unusually close relationship with Andy Vanya, and um, the. uh, So if you know, if anybody listening wants, you know, extra background and about the book, um, the audio commentary is on all the Blu-rays and the 4Ks and what have you. And now I I went off on a tangent, and I forgot where we were. What what was our topic to begin with? There, I I do this conversation. I go off. No, no. no. The
1: the question was: Is should they go back and CGI a beard and mustache on (laughs) Sylvester?
2: No, they should not. But but you know, it. I I had my heart sank a little bit uh, when I first saw the film, because. There's sly and he's got, you know, his hair's kind of long, but he doesn't, you know. He, he. And Teasel says to him, wonderful Brian Dennehy, says to him, we don't like guys who look like you coming to our town. And everybody in the <laughs> audience, all the men said, what's wrong with the way he looks? Because they yeah. all look like him. <laughs> the, the culture had changed that much. Yeah. And it wasn't until we get to the fight in the jail and then, you know. <laughs> So there was a moment there where I thought, oh, we got a problem here. This this picture might not work. and then But then the fight starts and then everything's fine. Yeah. yeah.
0: I think it worked out pretty good for everyone involved. <laughs> David, this has been awesome, man. Please tell everyone where they can find you, buy your sure. books, websites, Facebooks, all that stuff.
2: Well, I have a website which is designed kind of like a magazine. It has a lot of information. Uh, and it's uh, net. There's a photographer who has the com, so I have to be the net. But hey, it's cool. It's the network of readers and that you, sort of.
1: You thing. need me to murder him?
2: No. <laughs> but somebody <laughs> was signing once. I was once at a signing, and I was talking, and the the, the bookstore had been given some money for a kind of a event with my signing, and the owner had hired her nephew, who played the guitar, and as I was. Talking suddenly, there's a guy next to me putting up a music stand and starting to sing "Puff the Magic Dragon." Seriously, and somebody in the audience came up to me and leaned over and said, "Do you want me to kill him for you?" So I said, "No, I said, no I'm just we don't want." To. So, oh God, the stories. So.
0: <laughs>
2: All right. So where are we now? What?
0: Where can we find David you on oh, yeah. social media?
2: There's lots of lots of really interesting material there. And a lot of things on the book page. For example, I did comic books from with Marvel for Captain America, Spider-Man and Wolverine, which people might not know about. And the Rambo page is a very informative background interview that i did plus some rare posters and some rare photos and things like that and i'm on twitter every day um and i'm on facebook every day uh and uh it it oddly you know i didn't think it would take much time but over the years it's it's because i try to answer uh, uh, everything and uh, so i am i guess the point of what i'm saying is that i am interactive and i do respond and <clears throat> um you know we we get some interesting conversations going
0: awesome man thank you so much and uh hopefully down the road we we'll, we can have you back sometime because there's so much that we did not cover
2: well we'll see if when creepers comes out it's it, it, it it's finished um but when i last heard they were doing the 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 scoring and the editing, but, you know, with the writer's guild strike now, um, even though I'm, I've two hats, I'm in the writer's guild, but I'm also a novelist. And so I I have a feeling that maybe the producers wouldn't want to get in touch with me for fear that it, you know, that, that, that porous boundary wouldn't be, you know, comfortable for them. And, you know, it's kind of bad because I have several, I've had, over the years, several uh, projects in film development that are optioned, um, but they never go anywhere. Uh, I mean, they you know there's some some action and then nothing happens. And and uh, one well, I can't talk about it, but one project looks like it might it was closer than usual. Um, and I'd like to know about that too. But I you know I have that that whole. Uh, the the uh, Disney and and Warner Brothers uh, actually told the showrunners for their for their series, and those showrunners are writers as well as producers. They told them they had to show up for work on Monday morning. And the writers, the, the showrunners said, "But we're you can't, you know, we're we're both. You can't just say you're the showrunner now, but not the writer." So this there's, there's going to be a lot of you know a lot of fun uh, in a bad way that that, that comes out of this.
0: Awesome, man. Well, anytime you want to come back, you are more than welcome, man.
2: Very good. Fun chatting with you. Like You know, we had some laughs, so that's good.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thank you so much.
2: Okay. Have good a night. great day, man. Yeah.